Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? You know, I know that Mission Impossible movies are known for having thrilling action scenes where Tom Cruise does all of his own stunts. Unfortunately, for this movie, it looks like he's also doing his own research into how nuclear weapons work, too. This movie's plot, I do not choose to accept it. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. I'm joined in the podcast studio by my co-host Gabe. Well, at least I think it's Gabe. It could be somebody in a really convincing face mask. So let me rephrase. I'm I'm 95% sure yeah, I, I'm joined in the studio by Gabe today. Today, today I'm also 95% sure that I'm Gabe, so anytime I'm... <laughs> Somewhere in the high 90s, that's, you're probably pretty good, so I think I think Gabe's here as well. Yeah, it's good. It's a good way to deal with your identity crisis. We're also joined over Skype by our friend and international man of mystery, James Finnegan. James, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm 100% sure that I am not in the studio, and I'm up <laughs> in Cambridge. Jesus. All right, well, what are your qualifications to be on this podcast? Well, my qualifications is that I've uh, listened to maybe... 80 to 95 percent of super critical podcasts so i'm basically a pop hardcore, culture hardcore nuclear fan. weapons as- expert that's at this awesome. point that's more than gabe i think it's great <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'm a friend of tim's friend of gabe's i yeah just like tom cruise jumping onto the landing skids of an airbus airbus as350 i'm along for the ride oh, somebody did his research <laughs> nice. for the podcast this is that's what great we need. This yeah is what we need all right, so we're here today uh, to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth movie in 20 years in the Mission Impossible franchise, the third to have plots about weapons of mass destruction, the second to feature a group of insane ideologists hellbent on detonating nuclear weapons to, quote, save the world from itself, but at least it's the first one in the franchise to have someone drop an F-bomb in it. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so, Gabe, James, uh, let's talk about a little bit of background before we delve into Mission Impossible Fallout. You guys like the series? Have you seen all of the films? Or how, how, what's your, what are you going into when we saw this movie? Gabe and I saw it last night. James, I think you saw it a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is the first time I think we've done a movie where it's still in the theaters. Yeah. I think so. So yeah. this will be kind of interesting. And I think this was the first movie we've done where we actually saw the movie together in the theater. In the theater, yeah. yeah. And, and we did a parking lot discussion act afterward. It was more just out front of the theater, but mm-hmm. close enough. No, I... I um, so actually, I came to the, the franchise very early. I saw that original movie in the 90s back when I was as a... A young lad, I really loved it. I thought that that last scene with the um, with the train and the tunnel and the helicopter, I, I just loved it. Uh, red light, green light. Um, <laughs> but actually, have not seen. This is the first one I've seen since then. I tried to watch one of them on the plane. I forget, maybe Mission Impossible Three, and I was on a flight and it just wasn't working, and mm. I changed to something else. Or yeah. So no, I, I, this is my uh, I'm a lapsed aficionado of the series. What about you, James? Yeah, I would say. Um... Overall, I'd give it a pretty high rating. And, of course, the first movie, yeah, I can't believe it came out in 1996, so two years ago. Um, oh, my God. And, yeah, I mean, we were what we were all uh, tender-hearted middle schoolers at that point. We were listening and... to Backstreet Boys and <laughs> playing with our Tamagotchis. And... 
Slamming, yep. slamming pogs. <laughs> so the uh, and I, you know, what I remember that movie was at the time. Yeah, you know, I saw it in theaters with my friends, and you just thought it was super cool. And there was all kinds of action and intrigue going on, but you didn't understand half of what the heck was going on. <laughs> yeah. So you had to rewatch it like four or five times before you sort of realized, oh, okay, like. You know, Tom Cruise's character has already figured out that John Boyd's the bad guy, but he's playing along and he's doing all these like double blind foils to get to his objective at the end. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a great movie. And then there were a few duds in the series, I would say, but they also had some great villains. You know, they had uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, Mission Impossible 3 was one of Joel and I's favorite films. Really? We yeah. saw that in the theater twice. Uh, really, really like that one. I thought he was a good villain. Okay, so I should go, yeah, pick up where I left off on that flight like 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember much about Mission Impossible 2. That's the one I think I was most uh, disappointed by. But 4, 5, and 6 I thought are all pretty good. Now, uh, 4 in particular, Ghost Protocol, was one of the first movies that we did on this podcast. Okay. And it was actually partially the inspiration for the podcast itself because of the nonsense it had where he's slamming an abort button at the last minute to shut off an ICBM missile that's about to hit the, hit the ground. Like, I, I watch that and I go, I was enjoying this up to this point. This has taken me out of the movie. Now, I still really, I overall like the film, but this was the first time where I, I was watching this and I said, all right, actually, let's do this podcast because I just got some things to say. But this one in particular, uh, the Mission Impossible Fallout, there were some of those issues, but I wasn't as bothered by them for this yeah. one. So we'll see how this goes. Okay. But I, I'm especially interested in your guys' opinion as people who maybe aren't as distracted as these things as as I am. Gabe got me more distracted by the helicopters and the the airplanes. Yeah, right. No, stuff. exactly. We will can we'll talk about that. So this movie was released in July of 2018, uh, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who also directed Rogue Nation. I guess Rogue Nation is the oh, direct prequel to this. The other ones have somewhat prequelish qualities to this one in terms of like connections, but this is really a direct follow-on. Uh, Christian McCory also wrote uh, Usual Suspects and a couple other like half-dozen Tom Cruise movies. People like this film. Overall, 97% of critics on Rotten Tomato scored it as pretty good. Uh, 89% of the fans like it. Uh, and it's made almost seven hundred and forty-nine million worldwide. That's a high. That that's like Pixar territory. Still pretty Rotten good. Tomatoes. Yeah, no, that's that it for a for a big blockbuster movie. That's a pretty high Rotten Tomatoes rating, I must say. Yeah, it's doing pretty good. Uh, so let's see how it holds up to our own scrutiny uh, and our super critical focus. All right, so let's get through this. So we'll uh, run through the plot of the movie, and as usual, spoiler warning: if you haven't seen this yet in the theater. Probably recommend at least checking it out or reading the Wikipedia entry if you want to have some sort of suspension of of spoilers before you get started. Uh, so let's I'll get started here, but then I'll really let Gabe and uh, James run through the plot stuff because I've got enough to talk about on the nuke end. Uh, so the movie starts with a nuclear detonation within one minute. So I think it really sets the stage for this film. Uh, you see Tom Cruise and his wife from the third movie, and uh, he's going through his, I guess, a wedding vow type thing they're exchanging vows but it's clearly the villain from the fifth movie uh, who's doing the ceremony uh and there's a bomb goes off in the distance while everybody's smiling tom cruise is freaking out and his face vaporizes and we see his skull do you ethan take julia to be your lawful wedded wife i do to have to hold to love cherish honor and protect i do to shield from terrors known and unknown to lie, to deceive, to live a double life, 
to fail to prevent her abduction, erase her identity, force her into hiding, take away all she has known Stop. in a selfish, futile, fleeting Stop. attempt to escape your own true self. Please, stop. And Julia, do you choose to accept? Don't. I do. No. You should have killed me, Ethan. Turns out the movie's not over. Yeah, right, 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 right. It's not like a. You may be wondering how I got into this situation. I, I would love that if that was like the end of the movie yeah. right there. It was two minutes in, and you're like, okay, it's wait. Like two weeks was, earlier. Yeah, that was just a great joke uh, of a movie, but. But instead, it's a dream sequence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what, uh, what, when he wakes up from this dream, what, what ends up happening, Gabe? So, he wakes up, he gets this message. So, this is Ethan Hunt, who's the protagonist, this kind of. He's not like a cold, calculated killer type. He's not like a James Bond either, like wacky, goofy. He's kind of something in between. But he gets this mission, um, or this tape gets delivered to him. It's it's hidden in a book, and it informs him of this new terrorist threat that uh, this guy Solomon Lane, uh, who was he took out two years prior in the series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now there's some new threat uh, where there are three plutonium cores that were stolen from a base in Russia somewhere by some Eastern European bad guys by this new syndicate terrorist group. Or is it new or was it from the Well, previous... I think the syndicate was what they called it in Rogue Nation, okay. the movie, the last one. This is now called oh, the, the Apostles. Oh, the Apostles, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there are these apostles led by this mysterious guy, uh, John Lark, who uh, he's leading this group, the Apostles, and... His mission is you got to find Lark, find the the plutonium cores, get get these out of the out of the hands of the terrorists and, and save the world. And then in Mission Impossible fashion, the the tape self destructs and and he has to decide whether this mission whether he will choose to accept it or not. Mm-hmm. They have been contacted by this man, an unidentified extremist known only by the code name John Lark, author of this apocalyptic manifesto calling for the destruction of the current world order. It is believed Lark is responsible for the disappearance of Norwegian nuclear weapons specialist Niels Delbruck. Meanwhile, the Apostles have been in contact with elements of the Eastern European underworld who are in possession of three plutonium cores stolen from a missile base in Eastern Russia. This would indicate that John Lark and the Apostles are working together to acquire functioning nuclear weapons. Nest estimates that a man with Delbruck's knowledge, using the materials in play, could complete three nuclear weapons in as little as 72 hours. These devices would be man-portable and deployable anywhere on Earth overnight. In the hands of John Lark and the Apostles, these weapons represent an unprecedented threat to countless millions. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to prevent the Apostles from acquiring plutonium using any means at your disposal. But the the thing that we hear is that there's some sort of Norwegian scientist, uh, nuclear scientist, who's gone rogue, right? Uh, Because he is helping the Apostles build... Uh, like a homemade nuclear device. Because this guy is so brilliant that he can just take a plutonium core and build a bomb. Uh, I guess that's what they teach in Norway uh, to be able to do this. But they're looking for him. They're looking for all this stuff. But what they really need is to get their hands on these plutonium cores. Right, exactly. And and so they um, they try to get the cores through a, a deal that uh, they're going to they're gonna go to these uh, people who have it, uh, intercept it before the apostles can get them. It goes horribly wrong. They they get intercepted. Um, the apostles show up and, and take over the whole thing. And basically, Ethan Hunt makes a decision to save his team rather than... There's this gunfight. He saves his team rather than going for the plutonium cores. So now 
adds a little extra level. He's he's made this choice. Now the cores are out there. He could have had them, but he decided to save his his group, which is uh, it was I, I forget the character's name, but Bing Rames and Simon Pegg are yeah. kind of his. Bing Rames is a uh, Luther. Uh, that's right, and, and Simon Pegg is Benji. Benji, that's right. So comic relief slash uh, Deus Ex Machina in the movie. So yep. yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, um, James, do you remember kind of why they decided this group, like why they're trying to blow up something? They've got like this weird goal in mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think they're sort of like Malthusian utopianists where they, they think that the the global population is spinning out of control and we're consuming too many resources. And so in order to save humanity, they need to just basically cut the population by at least a third and cause anarchy and bring down, create the, the, entire, bring down the system. Yeah. Yeah. Create the entire global, make the entire global order collapse so that we can start back as a more primitive society or something along those lines. Is, am I missing something here? No, that, that's pretty good. The, I wanted to hear what you thought of it because it's very similar to ghost protocol. Like in that one, there's a, a Swedish born Russian nuclear th- scientist. Who's also a, expert in nuclear deterrence endgame theory like that's how they describe him which basically just means that he's a little bit of a crazy nut who wants to start a war between the u.s and russia and out of that would form a new civilization that's not corrupted by i don't know something like we'd be able to survive better if we had a nuclear war and then what would civil new civilization would be cleaner and purer all that kind of stuff so i don't know i just thought that this was very similar and i don't I haven't seen any reviews that have talked about that but and I thought that was really interesting. Maybe I'm the yeah. only one that kind of focuses on that. But I thought it was really odd when they were just like, oh, yeah, Russian missile base somewhere in eastern Russia. They stole the bombs. No problem. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because usually they're not stored. Like plutonium cores aren't stored just like at the missile base. They're either in the missile or they're at another storage facility somewhere else. It's like keeping the ammunition stored inside the gun. You, got, I guess you got to keep it separate. Yeah. It's just for its safety purposes and also so that they're ready to use. Right. Like, sure. Uh, you would store them kind of wherever there was be a central location for them to get the missiles or to load them onto new missiles when they were fired or something like that. But gotcha. who knows? Maybe they like removed the warheads out of the missile. Like th- this Eastern European, who knows who it is group, black, yeah. ma- black market. It's really good. We can, yeah, we can, we can assume that, I think. All right. So the, the cores, the plutonium cores, as they say later, are, are in the wind. They're missing. The Some group has them. And then the next scene we see is like Tom Cruise looking super solemn and a cnn headline saying nuclear attacks in all these different places and it looks like he failed and the bombs have gone off which i thought from the trailer do you see that scene in the trailer as well and it looked like that's what was happening right so james what uh what's happens from there because i thought this moment where i was about to be like wow this movie has really gone out and done it because in the previous one they explode the kremlin in in ghost protocol so i thought maybe yeah they'll go ahead and and nuke three major cities like Jerusalem, Mecca, and uh, Rome. Rome. Rome, yeah. yeah. So, James, what happens here? Because this is a pretty crazy scene. Right, yeah. This one got me um, in the theater. And uh, so, obviously, the three you know, holiest cities uh, for the world's you know, major Abrahamic religions. You just have the impression that they couldn't foil the plan. The first strike has occurred. And you're kind of assuming that the rest of the movie is going to be Ethan Hunt and his team trying to pick up the pieces and stop anything worse from happening. Yeah, Wolf Blitzer, um, Wolf Blitzer is giving us casualty ratings and telling it's nu- it's a nuclear attack because there's radiation. Yeah, and so meanwhile, uh, the physicist from Norway, Niels de Broek, is kind of feeling his oats, and he's uh, super <laughs> excited that this plan has 
uh, come to fruition. And so he just starts spilling the beans and says, you know, what his role was in the plot. And um, he, they have this manifesto that they want read on the air. That's like his one condition, mm-hmm. you know, is I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's going on, but you have to read this manifesto on the air. So Wolf Blitzer reads it. Um, you know, Tom Cruise pretends he's making a phone call uh, into the station. And next thing you know, Wolf Blitzer is kind of checking his earpiece. And he starts reading this manifesto. And uh, once that's completed, the physicist gives them the information they need. And uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, this classic Mission Impossible, <laughs> double fake, all the walls fall down or whatever. And Wolf Blitzer walks in to the set. Um, and he was just in the next room over, you know, on a fake set that the IMF set up for him. And he goes, did we get it? Yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's proof. It's proof. It's, it's awesome proof that cameo. CNN is and fake news, it, it, right it there. Well yeah, <laughs> I it, it's in this movie. Yeah. we know that it's fake news. Uh, but yeah. it's is it Wolf? Yeah, Blitzer? the president was is right it, all it, along. Was it really Wolf? Did he really get get get, get blitzed? Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, so uh, that that's actually kind of what I liked about it is it was this really like tongue in cheek thing on multiple levels because Wolf Blitzer is clearly acting in this movie. But then it's supposed. To, then you realize that it was Benji in one of the Mission Impossible uh-huh. IMF masks with a voice changer, and so in the actual real world of the movie, Wolf Blitzer wasn't there at all. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like a a fun, you know, fake out cameo on multiple levels there. Did we get it? Of course we got it. I told you we get it. I don't understand. The attacks didn't happen. What's done is done. And what we say it's done. Gabe, you said it was fake news, but it also seems a bit like gotcha journalism yeah, right. since they it's... tricked him. Uh, so I'll let Tom Cruise himself, in his own words, explain kind of why this scene played out like this. Uh, he says this in an interview with Hollywood Reporter. He says, The idea came together in Fallout simply for the fact that I wanted the audience to experience for one minute what it would be like if the villain actually won. You'll never feel that in these movies. All of these films, even Bond films, the Doomsday scenarios never play out, and rightly so, the movie cannot recover from it. But I wanted to make the beginning of the movie all about Ethan's worst nightmares. I wanted the audience to experience them and let them off the hook once the movie actually started. That was my way of giving you a taste of what could happen. So, James, you said you fell for it. I definitely fell for it the first time. I, I actually, no, I, I, I had a feeling. When they were talking about this manifesto, it seemed very uh, contrived the way they were talking about it. So I was like, eh, there's something up here. Maybe I've been, um, maybe I'm too paranoid about things. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. attuned to the double fake out. But... Yeah. Right. But anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, so we learn about the, the bomb design from the information that James mentioned that we get from this guy's phone because he unlocks the phone i guess it's not like one of those iphones that you said to put up to somebody's face right or a thumbprint he has yeah. to actually have a passcode and everything so he puts the passcode in there they get the information they find out that there's this bomb right and they, you see the bomb like schematics multiple times and it's always like taking itself apart and then putting itself back together there's some place in the middle where the plutonium core goes and it like snaps shut yeah. like uh i don't know how to describe it like it closes like a claw on either side and like encompasses it I thought that looked really wacky, but it probably makes a lot of sense. Like, it's visually interesting. It has nothing at all what an actual kind of bomb looks like, at least how what is open in the open source. It looks like a double hydraulic press that kind of moves together. 
They say you, it's you a, gotta realize though, nobody no, it, nobody going to the movie is like that's not an accurate description of and that's what okay. I, yeah, because no one really. I mean, there to me it looked fine. Knows. I'm like, yeah, that yeah, sure. sure. That's a <laughs> yeah, that's a plutonium bomb. Sure, hey, it's, it's a you know, yeah. Defense contractors and nuclear physicists go to the movies too. There we go, <laughs> especially in the DC area. I heard I heard a few, I heard a few scoffs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they say it's a five megaton bomb, and now there's potentially up to three of them. Uh, I just want to point out right now, that's really impressive because uh, the Russians don't deploy any warheads with yields higher than 800 kilotons, let alone five megatons. So uh, that is a pretty damn good uh, Norwegian so I'm, scientist. I'm assuming a thousand kilotons is one megaton. Is yeah. That, okay. All right. For so the this... non Yep. nuclear. Okay, cool. So, so they're they're doing pretty good there. So this this number comes from Hans Christensen and Robert Norris, who are two great uh, scholars on on nuclear things. This is their like accounting of what nukes were in 2017 for the Russians. Sure. So maybe they got them somewhere. Maybe this Norwegian scientist found some incredible way to break physics and have new efficiencies with plutonium. But yeah, no, five megaton is big. If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. So they, they know they have to go to Paris to meet up with this guy, John Lark, who's maybe running running the show here. Yeah, so John... Yeah, I don't know who he looks like. Exactly. The mysterious terrorist. But there's one more setup. We, we, there's one more character we got to put in the movie. Hmm. Important character. Uh, this guy, August Walker, who's this like loose cannon right, right. agent. CIA says to IMF, you guys really dropped the ball here. You... Literally, you dropped a plutonium ball. <laughs> um, you let these go, yeah. um, and uh, I want to. We want to have the CIA involved in this, so we're gonna we're gonna get this guy August Walker. So Angela Bassett plays the CIA director. This is her man. Uh, August Walker is another played, agent. played by Henry Cavill, who the guy who plays Superman, exactly. well, at least did up until re- fairly recently. I think he said he's not going to do it again. Yeah, and he has this like very nefarious looking mustache in this in this movie. Yeah, which... I thought the must the mustache was on point, pretty good. Yeah, it was good like villain like snidely whiplash type uh almost borderline. You kind of know, spoiler alert, this guy maybe not be up to so good. Yeah. Well, he's got a mustache. Yeah, right. the mustache. <laughs> well, James James has one of the most impressive beards I think I've ever seen on a, on, a, on a person, let alone a international man of mystery. How did you feel about? Well, that? actually, what what interested me, I mean, obviously it did add to his uh, villainous look there. What was interesting to me, which I hadn't realized because I'm not a huge Justice League guy, I, I haven't seen all Superman movies, but they were saying, I, I read it in an article recently that the whole time he was playing Superman, he had that mustache. Apparently, it's kind of his personal look, and uh, they just CGI'd it out so they could have a clean shaven Superman. <laughs> what I heard about that story was was that Tom Cruise, in one of the scenes later on where he's running and jumping over buildings, he broke his ankle. Okay. Because he does his own stunts, right? So he broke his ankle and they had to shut production down for several months, but people still have to, like, work. So Henry Cavill is like, all right, well, I'm going to go do Superman right now. Uh, and then, so we shaved the mustache. And they're like, all right, you need to come back, uh, but I need to grow a mustache for this role. So they like, let him, DC let him grow the mustache back and then oh, they had to CGI okay. it out. That's crazy. Something weird like that. So it was, I think it was that's a what production conflict super- between two large, uh, you know, franchise motion pictures. Mustache gate. <laughs> But anyways, I, I thought it was worth having the mustache. I'm glad he grew it back because it definitely added something to it a little bit. So um, Alec Baldwin, who plays the the director of IMF, he reluctantly agrees to to let uh, August Walker come along. And the really the hunt begins for these plutonium cores with this mission in Paris, where they start with uh, they start in an airplane flying over Paris, and they need to skydive out. This is Ethan Hunt and uh, August Walker, and you kind of see August Walker as this like loose cannon. There's a storm below. Ethan's saying, we, we got to wait. We can't jump. And 
he says, you're too much of a you-know-what, let's get out of this airplane, and mm -hmm. he just kind of runs and actually gets struck by lightning and, and goes unconscious. Ethan Hunt has to save him on the way down. This is a great scene. Walker, what's the matter, Hunt? Afraid of a little lightning? Yeah, I really like this scene. It's It kind of looks like a whole, like, one long shot. Uh, I don't know if it actually is, mm. but it looks like one long shot. And I, I'm always impressed by films that do that really well, especially skydiving out of an airplane. Gabe, what did you think about the, the airplane uh, truthfulness yeah, and accuracy in this film? I know. We'll, we'll do the, <laughs> when we do the super critical angle we'll of that. attack podcast, no, but there was, like, this thing where... He's like, there's no atmosphere up here. I'm like, no, there is atmosphere. It's just a little bit thinner. And then they like open the back of the plane. They're like, decompression now. And they open the back of the plane and like, you'd expect all the air to rush out if it was going to be decompressed and mm -hmm. nothing happens. And I, yeah. Sorry, we'll stick to the nuclear nonsense, not the airplane nonsense. It also did look like they were just above the clouds, right? And then immediately yeah, they're well, out that of the was clouds. The other thing. How high altitude is that? They said they were at 25,000 feet. And they go through the thunderstorms, which are uh, the thunderstorms. They clear the thunderstorms at around 20,000 feet. But mm -hmm. thunderstorms are usually like a few thousand feet above the ground. They'll be really thick. They'll go from mm -hmm. like 3,000 feet above the ground all the way up to 30,000 feet. So you'd be in this thunderstorm for literally the whole time you're skydiving. Like there's really not much lightning up there. From an aviation weather standpoint, uh, this one ground, ground my gears a little bit. Did you say it shocked you? <laughs> <laughs> the scene uh gabe james what do you think about that scene i love that scene when they're skydiving down through the the lightning storm I, I literally like on the edge of my seat gripping the the sides of my seat I yeah no really i mean cool. i thought that was obviously one of the great uh just short set pieces of the movie uh, i can only assume that all the photons emanating from the city of light were kind of buffeting the thunderclouds <laughs> up to higher altitudes oh there we go that's my pseudoscientific explanation but uh yeah <laughs> So they land, uh, Ethan saves uh, John, um, ooh, 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 almost spoiled this, he saves August Walker. What else happens after this? Because they still have a mission to So do. yeah, so they, uh, they get into this uh, elite nightclub, which is uh, being, in one way or another, kind of operated by the White Widow and her fairly inept, thuggish uh, French siblings. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and she, she's and, like a she's played by Vanessa yeah. Kirby, who's from The Crown. Mm. She's like the sister in The Crown. I guess it seems like it's a combination charity ball plus rave. Yeah, yeah. charity well, ball slash rave slash uh, international yeah, weapons yeah. transfer. Yeah, she she's like this social elite uh, philanthropist, but is also apparently involved in. She's broking this transaction where the um, the the apostles are going to get the nuclear weapon at this yeah, at this party. The cores, yeah. Well, you know the fun or thing the is you, you mentioned the first movie. So her mother, the Black Widow's mother, she mentions her name is Max. Okay. Oh. Max is the the arms dealer from the first movie. Oh, see, I remember wow, that, that was way over my head. Yep. So I don't know. There's no. It, it, I didn't get it the first time either. I'm like Max. Oh, cool. That's a cool name because I yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a while and I rewatched it recently. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. They're trying to track this guy who they think is John Lark because he has a RFID wristband because that's what you need to get through security to go to the Black Widow party. They go to this bathroom because that's how they track the guy into it. I thought this fight scene was really cool when they think they find the guy. There's this fight scene in the bathroom uh, and, and it's like the bathroom's all white and everyone's wearing black and and. The blood that's coming out is red. This was like one of the few scenes in the movie. I had a huge issue with the color grading in this movie. Mm. If you if you've watched a movie within the last like twenty years, 
they turn all the colors up. They'll turn it to like an orange and teal palette, uh, color palette. You have mm. to watch carefully. I'm, I might be ruining movies for everybody's listening, but like pay attention to this. And this movie was like such a bad offender. Every scene, everything in the background is teal and like their whole like faces mm-hmm. and everything are like orange, like they've been in a tanning bed. This is one of the few scenes in the movie I could enjoy because it was just white and black and red and yeah, very like J.J. Abrams colors rather than... Uh, this is like orange and teal nonsense. Mm. It was a fun scene. They there's like uh, they're fighting in the bathroom with this guy that they think is John Lark. And in the at the end of the day, this woman Ilsa Faust, who I guess she's from one of the previous movies. She's I think a... she's from the last two. She's okay. like the next love interest uh, slash like MI6 special agent. Right. Uh, f- like they work together, him and her and uh, and Ethan Hunt and everything. But okay. We think at the end of the last movie that she had gotten out, like she had no longer wanted to be a secret agent. Okay, she was going to leave the but game. But now she's back in. Yeah. Yeah. They pulled her back in. Uh, I love I love this fight scene. There's some fun jokes in there because uh, one of the things that's great about the, these movies is that they come up with a really great intricate plan and then it always kind of falls apart yeah. and they have to improvise. This one, they were going to scan John Lark's face and then like put on another one of those masks and you're like, oh God, the fourth mask already or whatever it is because of the crazy nature of uh august walker he hits john lark in the face with the uh machine that they were the computer that they were going to use to like 3d print the yeah. face and they go to then to go to 3d print it and it's like clearly not working well and i think i think also it was implied that so um ilsa comes into the bathroom fight scene to save the day like in the face right because uh, this in the yeah, face, yeah. And, yeah, shoots him in the face, and they're like, well, we can't scan his face anymore. He doesn't have one. <laughs> they need a face to scan. I know. It's kind of like really... I was strikes me in these movies where they like brutally uh, murder somebody, and everyone acts like nothing's... Like everything's... It's kind of the world, eh? joke. Then justify the means. Come on, I get your, your, your PJ-13 <laughs> sensibilities. I know. Sorry. I was aiming for his chest. Ethan has to pretend to be John Lark and hope that White Widow never met him. It works out pretty good for him, right? They, he he earns her trust by saving her from some like either American or British agents that are trying to kill John Lark. No, it, it works out well because um, she, he's able to get her trust, but she says that uh, she'll give him the cores. But what she needs is to have this terrorist Solomon Lane, who I guess was also from the previous movies. This is what the White Widow says. Yes, yeah, yeah. the White Widow says, "I need him. I need you to give me him." And they come up with this elaborate plan where she says, you're going to you're going to abduct him. He's going to be in Paris being transported from one prison facility to another. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is how you're going to you're going to get him. And um, it's going to it's kind of a brutal plan. It involves killing a lot of people. Ethan kind of takes things into his own hands a little bit. He play he goes along. He he says he goes along with the plan to capture him, but they do it their own way. Yeah, this is another one of these great, really long action sequences that I loved about this movie. So I recently was in Paris in London in April uh, of this year, so a couple months ago, for for like personal vacation. And this movie takes place pretty much in like London and Paris, pretty much almost right the areas we were staying oh, nice. and visiting. So it was really cool to see all this. And there's this great motorcycle chase scene where after they, they, they get Solomon Lane, this the, the bad guy from the last movie, they get him and they, they put him in... Uh, uh, they eventually get him and give Benji's holding on to him, but Ethan Hunt still has to escape everything. And there's this be- really cool, beautiful like micro- motorcycle chase scene through Paris, and they go around the Arc de Triomphe like the wrong way in yeah. traffic. And I had to 
go there because we went to go to visit and I thought that traffic circle that was going around frightened me like there's no way I could ever drive that yeah, traffic circle yeah. even if I I just couldn't do it I, I was trying to picture a world where I would be able to handle that turn that roundabout I just couldn't do it and he's doing it in a motorcycle going the other way obviously it's a movie but I, that was really cool another one of those like leaning forward in the movies yeah uh, this this uh, this scene reminded me of so you know the scene where they um, they capture this guy Solomon Lane and Ethan Hunt's trying to escape it reminded me of there was this old short film from I think the 70s or 80s it's called Cete un rendezvous hmm. it's from uh, it, it's basically this guy that he's in Paris at like six in the morning or some early time and he drives this old car at like top speed like above 80 miles per hour through the city of Paris and there's this one scene where he drives, like, basically cutting people off through the Arc de Triomphe. Hmm. You have to watch it. Cause and that, that one's real, right? Yeah, no, that's real. This guy <laughs> this guy actually did that, and it's amazing he didn't kill himself and many other people uh, filming this movie. Uh, Cité wow. and Rendezvous. It was really good, so it reminded me a lot of that. But Ethan is able to get away, and they do capture Solomon Lane. And they actually get one of the plutonium cores. It's giving right. us a down payment. Oh, that's right. And the great thing about that scene, too, is that's, like, the classic... Will the will, will the hero be compromised because he's in deep cover, and they're asking yeah. him to kill all these police officers? And he's at first you think he's going along, and you're like, oh, this is kind of you know a little icky. Like Ethan Hunt's gonna kill all these innocent policemen just to break free Solomon Lane and achieve his mission. And then once it's all said and done, you realize that he's done another crazy, insane hoodwink to mm-hmm. make sure he can get Solomon Lane and get away without killing any of the police officers. Yeah, and he's attacked by Elsa because uh, she's there to kill Solomon Lane cause, so that he doesn't fall into the hands of another government. So yeah. This is actually kind of interesting. So MI6, which is a British secret service, is trying to thwart a U.S.-based like secret agent's mission so that he, none of the British secrets come out. Because this guy, Solomon Lane, is another former MI6 agent or MI15, one of those. I, d- I thought that was interesting that they, they make the British uh, secret agents kind of like a villain. Yeah, no, yeah, because she's, yeah, she's kind of the foil. She's trying to hunt down this guy. Because they capture Solomon and she's shooting at him. It looks like they're trying to. She's trying to kill them, but she's actually just trying to kill Solomon Lane yeah. when they're driving him away in the car. But, but anyway, they they get him. They capture him. Bring him to this kind of uh, secret dungeon area. And this is where things get a little bit interesting because so earlier in the movie, you, this guy August Walker. He there's a scene where he's talking to the CIA director and he's kind of saying this Ethan Hunt guy. I think he might be mm-hmm. um, John Lark. He's all around the world. He has this cover. Blah blah blah. And, they get to this underground area where they're keeping Solomon Lane and they say, okay, well, Agent August, the evil mustache guy, you're going to stay here and watch him. We're going to go out and uh, get the get the rest of the plutonium. Or Yeah, we're going to take Benji, give him a, a fake Solomon Lane mask, okay, and then pretend like that's Solomon Lane and just turn him in and hopefully they can get the plutonium that way exactly when they leave solomon lane or who you think is solomon lane alone with august walker this gets complicated august walker reveals himself to actually be john lark to solomon lane saying our you know our plan is afoot blah 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 is basically spilling all the beans and then at the end he's kind of talking to himself and realizes like uh oh these guys use masks a lot Mm -hmm. is this the real solomon lane and then benji pulls off the mask and Actually, he was confessing to Benji the whole time. Yeah, you have to have a, a code word you work out together. Exactly. You yeah. work with these people, like like some sort of little secret back and forth, uh, like a safe word, just so that yep. you don't get tricked. Yeah, and the whole time, exactly. 
I was saying, so the whole time they've been piping the, the audio and video to Angela Bassett, who uh, she sees all. She's the all-seeing Angela Bassett. And so she sends in the CIA thugs to pick up John Lark slash August. August Walker and everybody, right? Like she wants, she doesn't trust anybody. So she's going to bring everybody in. I thought that was a really bold move on her part because she's like, I don't trust any one of you to get the plutonium core. But like, it's still there and it's really close to being done. Yeah, this whole thing, I, you know, I had issues with this movie. This whole thing was just kind of a little bit silly in that there's like these director level people. I mean, um, Alec Baldwin's character is there in the dungeon. He's the one who runs this IMF. He gets and, he gets killed? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so what happens is, so these CIA agents turn out to be, I guess... Uh, some of them were, yeah. Yeah, some of them were, were had their allegiance to John Lark and they turn on them and, and basically kill they kill the imf guy they, they take solomon lane they free him so john lark and solomon lane they escape they're on the um the north side of the thames river which mm-hmm. i think is where you were near near blackfriars yeah that was the south side yeah okay yeah um so so th- they escape uh, ethan hunt chases them down and i thought it was a really fun chase scene yeah it was everybody great. makes fun of how tom cruise runs and this was this particular scene is about fifteen minutes of him running. A lot of arm pumping. Yep, because they because uh, Luther injects both Lark and Ethan Hunt with this like radiation tracker or some sort of tracker, so they're able to track via satellite. Like I love that scene because they're really funny too because they're Benji's on like a laptop or a tablet like saying, "All right, turn left, turn right," because he's got a map. He goes, "Oh wait, sorry, I flipped it upside down. I had the screen locked." Yeah, turn right. turn right. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, "All right, now jump." Oh wait, you're in. You're gonna jump out of a window on a like a fifth story building oh i'm sorry i had it in 2d that was fun it was like a lighthearted moment and this is where uh tom cruise breaks his foot and that's why they had to when he like jumps across they still use the take where he breaks his foot because if you like pause it you can see his foot like cracking oh jesus yeah anyway that was kind of cool all right so we finally after this really long chase scene walker and ethan hunter in the same like elevator shaft yeah they they escape so they cross they cross so Blackfriars. They cross Blackfriars. They go to the south side of the Thames to the Tate Modern. There's this tower at the Tate Modern. They and um, uh, John Lark takes his elevator up, and Ethan Hunt, in typical fashion, he jumps on the bottom of the elevator, and they're riding this elevator up. He's trying to chase him, and basically Lark has the opportunity to kill him there, mm-hmm. but he doesn't because he hands Ethan a picture of his ex-wife and says, "We have her." You kill me, we'll kill her. Let me go. We want to see you lose everything that you love. Yeah. So like, like apparently this is the mission is to not only blow up two nuclear bombs somewhere, but that Ethan loses something and he sees it. I guess Solomon Lane really hates Ethan Hunt for catching him. Yep. But yeah, so we find out because of the fact that there's this proliferation of trackers. Everybody's been tracked every everybody in this movie. Solomon Lane has a tracker in his neck that was, like, delayed so no one could know it was there before it was activated. We find out that they're on their way to pa- uh, Kashmir, which is uh, a disputed area. It's technically administered by India, but it's a disputed territory between India and Pakistan. They refer to it as on the border of Pakistan and China, which is technically true, but I thought it was kind of interesting why they didn't say India, Pakistan there. But anyways, so they, they know that they're on their way there, and that was interesting because we find out at the beginning of the movie that the Apostles had an outbreak, forced an outbreak of smallpox in that exact area. So they're still unclear about why that's the case. And it turns out that Ethan's wife, who uh, his name's I think name's Julie or Julia, she is now with kind of like a, a Doctors Without Borders place. 
That's her new identity. And they got sent there by the apostles after this outbreak, which the apostles started so that she would be there when the bombs went off. Exactly. Sinister. What's the deal? Why are they trying? Why are you detonating nuclear weapons in this remote part of the world? I really don't know, James. You know this one a little better than I do. Why are they? Why do they pick this place out of out of all the cities and stuff around the world? Yeah, why not New York or Shanghai or yeah? And the movie, you know, and you know, if you think about it in Hollywood terms, kind of makes sense. Uh, they claim that this is a giant glacier in this uh, heavily populated part of the world. Yeah, the Siachen Glacier. Uh, which is a real glacier, and apparently it is the second longest glacier in non-polar Earth. It's here kind of in this like mm-hmm. Himalayan, um, Karakoram area in this river valley. You know, Pakistan and India right next to each other, heavily populated. So there's a certain amount of truth to that. But um, it, feeds, it feeds into the, uh, yes. the Indus River, uh, which is funny. I, when I was at my previous job working at George Washington University, which is where... You guys met, but I worked there a couple of years ago doing research. One of the projects I, I left when I was moved to my new job uh, was on like water basin management and conflict resolution around the Indus River. Oh, really? So I thought this movie was like, why are you writing this movie for me, <laughs> filmmakers? Why are you doing this? Yeah. So they're going to detonate these bombs and vaporize part of the glacier and in theory set off this cataclysmic flood. And also the radiation from the bombs, I guess, is going to you know, permeate the water supply. And so you're going to have, you know, billions of people, I guess they say India, Pakistan, and China, you know, either they're going to, you know, their water supply is going to be ruined and there's going to be drought or they're going to die in the flood. And so they claim that this is going to wipe out a third of the world population, but I just don't buy that. And yeah, you know, this would be an awful attack. I'm not trying to downplay, but this is a nefarious plot for sure. Yeah, sure. But I don't know if it achieves the, uh, you know, the apostles aim of taking out a third of the world's population. Yeah, what I don't get is they're like, okay, we're going to irradiate the glacier and people will just die because of that. It's like there's other ways to get water to people than Mm -hmm. they'll know that the glacier water and the Indus River water is bad. Like there would presumably be some sort of. Mm-hmm. international effort to like get clean water to these people it's not like they would just drink the like yeah. well we have no other choice we're gonna drink the radioactive water and die i guess if i wanted to play a devil's advocate for here what it would be is it's not just that they would be like a surprise this is radiate radioactive water it's the water isn't safe therefore irrigation because the indus river does supply a lot of the irrigation I mean, there's oh, so for, the crops and stuff yeah there's there's really a, a big issue right now where china is going out and damming a lot of the parts of the river and, and diverting the indus river into they all call it different things like called the brahmarucha or it's totally not how you pronounce it but that's what they call it in india and it's got a couple different places and outlets so like that particular glacier is a major like vein into the the indus river but it's not the only one it gets drawn from a bunch of different places in the himalayas but like china is diverting a lot of water for their because it is desert but they want people to move there and have farmland so they're trying to irrigate it okay a lot of pakistan and india farmland which provides the food for the country a lot of those farmlands are along the indus river it is interesting that they talk about like nuclear attacks and this stuff in kashmir because most of the time people talk about kashmir as a like a hot spot uh, where a war could yeah, start. like border dispute between, type thing. Between India yeah, and Pakistan, yeah. two nuclear powers. Because there's been like lots of conflict. There's been like 20-year conflict essentially there. There was a ceasefire in 2003, but there's still like a lot of this back and forth there. But the movie changes it there. So, yeah, and, and like what I like about it is that in a lot of movies, the the 
the consequence of detonating a nuclear weapon is that a lot of people are going to die. And so in the here, blast. Yeah. Right, exactly. Here, actually, the bigger consequence when you're watching it is more about Ethan and all his cared loved ones dying. So, so as we said, his wife is at this camp. Um, this woman, Ilsa, his other love interest, is also at this camp yeah. um, helping them. Luther and Benji, the two people he cares about. So, and And we find out, actually, the way this is working is that um, the two bombs are that are there, they're kind of connected together. So you kind of have to defuse both of them at the same time. And there's this like uh, solution that Benji figures out where if you do it just right and do it at the same time, you have to get the um, the, the, the arming trigger. key. You unplug yeah. the arming key from like a walkie-talkie, and then that will short it out so that therefore you could actually just. Dis- disarm that cut the wire at the exact same time on both yeah no and it's pretty complicated it's complicated but i think the bottom line was that i I wasn't watching this thinking like oh i I hope this doesn't happen because i don't want the glacier to be irradiated i'm saying i hope this doesn't happen because like all these people ethan Ethan cares about are there and also i want to see the bad guy not succeed you Mm. know so it was a little bit different for me it was nice that a little bit of a change which was good well james what do you think about this so cuz i think gabe is definitely right that this that's an interesting twist to this but you know a really good way of like making ethan hunt sad that all of his friends and family die is like just killing his friends and family cuz they know where she is and just being like <laughs> right. videotaping it and yeah. saying like oh here by the way we know where you all are at all times and then just killing them i don't know why it has to be this elaborate bomb setup and, you know, maybe from the villain's perspective, what makes it more delicious is Ethan Hunt is the eternal optimist. He never says die. He always accomplishes the mission. And so instead of just killing these people that are important to him, they they mm. put their lives in the balance so that if Ethan fails to accomplish the mission and disarm the bombs, then not only has this terrible thing happened to the world, but, you know, in some sense he's going, I mean, he'll be dead, but... <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing too is he'll be dead that's instantly as soon as the bomb goes off if because they didn't expect him yeah to he be can't enjoy away. this yeah exactly no it's I, like he'll, he'll be like sad for a, uh, a nanosecond yeah maybe so Sol- so solomon is at the site at this camp and he's reserved to basically die in this thing right. but he sends uh john lark off in a helicopter to go live and continue this campaign of terror or whatever yeah, the bomb's on a 15 minute timer ethan leaves benji and luther and all the others at the camp to figure out the bombs and he says i'm gonna go get this detonation key and he runs and lark is leaving a helicopter there are two helicopters lark is leaving one helicopter mm-hmm. ethan's able to jump on the other helicopter that's following them so begins the, the this final scene which is really actually really cool i, I like it yeah yeah so ethan um there, he's climbing up. There's like a rope hanging down from the helicopter with a payload. He climbs up the rope, tries to get on the helicopter the first time, falls, ends up landing back on the rope and climbs up again. But it really has that feeling that this was not CGI. This was done mm-hmm. uh, live action, old school kind of thing. Well, uh, the news reports say that Tom Cruise learned how to fly a helicopter to some degree so he can do some of the scenes yeah. in the film itself. Uh, it's no, and I must say, watching so from from a uh, aviation enthusiast uh, pilot perspective, uh, the helicopter scenes actually you see the instrumentation in the helicopter. It kind of matches what's going on with the helicopter. There's hmm. there's some this was actually more realistic than I thought it would be, um, which I was very surprised. When well, next time you get an airplane, are you can do the whole like, all right, this is power, <laughs> this is power. All right, we got air myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, James, you've flown with uh, yeah. Gabe before, right? Do you think Gabe could crash a, a Cessna into another Cessna <laughs> if he needed to get to something? 
Like if the other guy had his lunch or something. Could crash the Cessna into the other Cessna. I don't could uh, do it in such a way that he can jump into the other cabin and grab his brown bag lunch. Yeah. <laughs> I need uh, I need some more time with the uh, yeah I need some more time with the e meter to get uh, uh, good enough with uh, yeah. No. Uh, uh, so well, I, I always like it when Gabe when we're flying he always says like all right if we hit water make sure to jump out of the airplane but stay away from the prop so like jump backwards <laughs> and I'm always like. Could I do that? Could I? Could I do this? Uh, but I guess apparently Ethan Hutt can. He can climb up I, a helicopter. I, yeah. I expect the same performance from you <laughs> uh, as in the airplane as I expect from Tom Cruise out of this movie. Yep. Uh, all right. So the team is looking for the two bombs, which are somewhere in this uh, makeshift camp. Oh, what they call like the? Uh, what do they call it? It's not like W H O. Yeah. It's like O A H. It's a similar like yeah. Doctor's Laboratory type. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the problem is, is that a lot of the radiation equipment that's there, like X-ray machines, CAT scans, radiation sources, they're giving false signals. So they can't, Benji and team can't find actually where the bomb is. But they may eventually find that one of them is on this like radio tower. So Luther and Julia, could we find out Julia's there? And there's this beautiful little scene of like, I'm sorry that we're here. Ethan? Julia? <laughs> Okay. And she's there with her new husband. Weird casting on him. He looked villainous too because of his weird villain yeah. eyebrows. He looked like an evil uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, that, yeah. He had, that's he had an evil smile the entire time, which I think was meant to be like, "Oh, this is a good guy." But I wonder if he'll be in the next movie. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Julia comes and helps Luther cut the wires and everything, and then there's a big fight scene between Solomon and Lane, which we don't really get into, and Benji and and Ilsa. But they find the two bombs. They get it pretty much dismantled. But the only thing they need, right, is that they they don't know whether or not that red button, which I thought was funny. It's like a red button, which normally pushes the, the start thing. So they have to pull that out. So it's like a red button fuse on this walkie-talkie. If they pull it out, then they can cut the wires at the same time because the count count started. Exactly. But they don't know if Ethan has done it because they're out of radio distance. Yeah, right. So they're trusting. Ethan says, trust me, I'll get the detonation key. Don't worry. But clearly, if you don't know, if you're not talking to him, you'd wait until the last possible second. So they they're waiting until the countdown gets to the end, basically yeah. to, to they agree give on him one second, left. yeah, to give him enough time. And and meanwhile, you know, Ethan's there. He takes command of that one, the helicopter he was climbing on. He ends up crashing that helicopter into uh, the helicopter that John Lark is in. Uh, Lark is is shooting at him and can't get him to. Oh, he he hits the engine. Ethan's helicopter is, is damaged, but he's at, he crashes the helicopter into the other one. They both land on this glacier and very yeah, fisticuffs again. Yes, yeah, typ- typical movie style. The 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 wreckage goes to the end of a cliff, and they're battling at the edge of this cliff. And there's this fight scene in the helicopter that Lark is in. A it looks like oil or hydraulic fluid sprays all over his face and mm. like har- horribly disfigures half his face. Call back to uh, uh, Batman. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> a two face and all that. <laughs> and um, it, 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 Ethan ends up uh, finally throwing him off the cliff, killing uh, a John Lark. So, we, and, then, and then we see our two other groups of heroes. They cut the wire, and then... Ethan, come in. Benji, how do we know if he's coming? We're out of time. We just have to hope he has it. Okay, we're ready. All right, stand by. There's like a white flash, flash on the screen, yeah. 
And James, I don't know, you want to describe this last scene? Because they try one more time. Is it, did the bomb go off? Sure, yeah, so you're made to understand that, uh, oh no, it's too late, you know, it went white, which kind of expresses the the flash of a nuclear detonation, and then it fades back out of white, and I can't remember what's the first frame you see. Is it Tom Cruise lying on the cliff, or is it the guys at the camp? We see a scene where he's like hanging off the side of the cliff, which is, I think, a callback to Mission Impossible Two, where you first see him and he's he's like yeah. climbing a cliff for no real reason. You see what looks like a bomb, like flash, like a mushroom cloud starting to form over the horizon, but it's the sunset. That's right. Yeah. And I th- and then we see I think Benji's face. Yeah. And, and it's you, like you oh like okay saved, yeah. So and so one more movies, one more fake out. Yeah, and then happy ending. Movie's over. Everyone, all the good people live. Lark is dead. Solomon Lane he gets transferred over to the uh, this broker, the White Widow, who's going to give him the British. Which then I guess in turn secures also Faust freedom because they've returned Solomon Lane. I guess so. I I, I thought she, hopefully we'll see. She seemed like she was out of that the last movie, but. Yeah. And then uh, it ends with Ethan Hunt being treated by uh, his ex-wife yeah. and creepy doctor dude, and <laughs> he's in so much pain that he can barely laugh. Um, it was a funny way of ending it, because he has broken ribs, right? Yeah. And he says, don't make me laugh. And that's the last line of the movie. Don't. <laughs> How close were we? The usual. <sighs> usual. Please don't make me laugh. That should be that should have been the tagline on the poster. Don't, don't make, make me laugh. laugh. Throwing a little bit of commentary here is the one the one thing I liked about this movie was all the allusions to the previous movies. Like, and they weren't just Easter eggs. They were kind of like interweaving characters. Like the White Widow yeah. is the daughter of Max from the first movie. And like you mentioned, he's hanging off the cliff at the very end, like he was in the second movie. And then you have all these characters. You have his his ex-wife, who he saves from Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, and and all these things that mm-hmm. like as you, every time you sit down to watch a new installment, you're kind of maybe in the back of your head saying, "Hey, what happened to like his wife? You know, what happened there? Like she's just not sure. Where did she go?" And so they bring her back and. There's that whole exposition with Vin Rains where he's like, you know, they tried to make it work out, but every time something bad happened in the world, you know, Ethan Hunt felt like he should have been there to stop it. Julia felt like he should have been there to stop too, and she was yeah. she was keeping him from saving the world. Which I thought was funny because that's a that's a Superman plot line to connect it again to Henry Cavill, who just apparently wants to be in every uh, Superman <laughs> Two Face. Because that's like Superman's whole thing is is like whether or not he, if any moment, could be saving somebody. Like, he can hear halfway around the world that someone's about to be hit by a car, but if he's going to have, like, dinner, lunch, if he's going to go to Chipotle with Lois Lane, he's like, uh, do I do that and have the guilt of someone dying, or yeah, that would, do that I would live suck. my life? That would suck being a superhero. Like, every minute that you're not saving people's lives, you're like, well, I'm, you know, I can't, I can't enjoy this at all. Every episode of TV I watch is, like, a thousand lives or something. Right. Well, there is a there is an element to a bit of sadness to Ethan Hunt's life living in Belfast in this safe house and he's just sleeping having nightmares the whole time yeah and he's like a machine that you just turn on whenever you need him to go do something and he literally can't have a life outside of this world otherwise he freaks out that's a kind of a dark 
character. And the, this movie ends with him laughing and saying his ribs are broken. But five minutes from now, he's going to have to be like, well, do I heal my broken ribs or do I go save the next group of crazy nuclear ideologists that want to build a bomb to destroy the world to save itself? I would love if they made a movie about Ethan Hunt, like on like a random Sunday when nothing's going on, like mm-hmm. the Wi-Fi goes out and he's like trying to get them to like fix the problem. And he's like on the phone with the like Comcast or whatever. And he's like, literally every every hour this is taking, this is costing thousands of lives. I need this Wi-Fi fixed. Yeah. And like just something mundane that it would be him. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll come and fix your Wi-Fi between the hours of 1 and 5 p.m. And it just keeps escalating and, until he has to break into Comcast headquarters in Philadelphia and, and get to the CEO's yeah. office. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Switch out some sort of chip. Yeah. Uh, in case you're wondering, Comcast does not sponsor this uh, program. These are not. <laughs> they never will, it sounds like. All right. So that's, uh, I think, a pretty fun discussion of the plot for the movie. But uh, that's not what we're here for, right? We're here to, to we're here We're here to cool. listen to you complain about all the bad nuclear nonsense. And, the, and, and to hear you tell me uh, why this doesn't matter <laughs> because it's not that kind of movie. And I appreciate that because it well, helps me keep all right, my well, head for, clear. All right. First off, tell us about these plutonium core. I mean, as somebody who has no idea, as I said, when I saw that schematic of the bomb, I'm like, okay, this is reasonable. Ba- sure. Basketball-sized cores, you put it in, the bomb goes. Is this any bearing in reality? So these plutonium cores, what they look like in the film are like fully enclosed core, meaning like the thing you put into like a weapon, whether it's a warhead or a nuclear bomb that you drop or inside of a missile, that kind of stuff. In, in the movie, it looks like a big silver metal ball. It looks like two hemispheres welded together, or at okay. least like a ball that got welded around. Yeah. It's about the size of a cantaloupe. And in the movie, it has writing on the side that says uh, C, as in uh, cat, CC699. Uh, what would C be for NATO? Charlie. Charlie. So, Charlie, Charlie, 699. Niner. Niner. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So I don't really know exactly what the what they're trying to say, but it, what it looks like to me is it's the outer casing is probably what they refer to as a tamper. What they're holding in their hand is not just a block of plutonium. It's the plutonium's on the inside, and there's a series of components on the and okay. uh, leading up to it. And does it have to be a sphere? Can it be? I mean, is that are they usually spherical or what's the? So the first couple of bombs were spherical. A lot of them are. Uh, this is a classified thing, so we don't really know, but we have general ideas that there are some that, that uh, are that are spheres that are hollow pits. Are you sorry? Tim is winking at me right now. <laughs> no, no, I do not have any sort of clearance. I can talk, <laughs> talk about this. Uh, I mean, there's some that have hollow pits, so they're hollow in the inside and they're filled with like tritium or some kind of a gas that helps to uh, keep the process going faster. They're levitated cores, so there's like a gap between the outer shell and the plutonium on the inside. Uh, sometimes it's filled with. Um, uranium sometimes it's filled with the conventional explosives that are on the outside of the plutonium piece itself because the whole idea with plutonium is that it's stored in what's called a non like subcritical uh, assembly or configuration so it's of the size that it is you can't have a supercritical reaction there's a conventional explosion that pushes all of that stuff and compresses it from the size of a cantaloupe to like the size of a golf ball in an instant and when you do that then you now have that reduced amount of space where neutrons can actually fire quicker and, and cause a supercritical reaction. So whatever bomb you have, this is, if it's plutonium core, it's an implosion bomb, meaning you cause this explosion. It has to be perfect. It can't be like more explosives on one side of the bomb if it's a sphere, because then everything gets misshaped and you get 
uh, fizzle or you don't get the right efficiency you need. There's something going on there in that bomb that compresses that sphere into a smaller ball, like a golf ball size, and then that's what causes the, the reaction. There's also elongated linear explosions, so like they're kind of more like an oval in the explosive, conventional explosives just kind of shape everything together in a different pattern. There's different styles depending on what you need. The more lighter weapons on like a MIRVED missile that has a multiple warheads on it. One missile can fire 10 or so warheads. Those tend to be lighter in terms of weight. And those are the elongated linear shapes. But those are, that's like really complex. But the, the idea is, is that there are these spheres that have plutonium in them. Um, they're fairly safe to hold unless they're damaged and broken. Uh, they're, they would be warm to the touch, but not searing because they are being heated by a nuclear reaction. But it's generally safe to hold because plutonium-239 tends to release mostly alpha particles. And alpha radiation can be blocked by your dead skin or any other parts of your body. Okay. Uh, they can be blocked by a sheet of paper. They tend to be fine. They're, the bigger issue is if you inhale it, like if you breathe it like a dust form, or if you ingest it. That, that's where it gets pretty nasty. There are other elements that you have to worry about, but plutonium itself mostly produces alpha particles. It's detectable, but that's not really something you have to worry about. So it's generally okay to, to hold it. What I thought was interesting was, why does there this writing on here that's, you know, Charlie Charlie 6909er? Uh, so I googled Charlie Charlie 6909er and the word plutonium, and I got on Google Images a 2016 slide deck from the Department of Energy's Office of Environmental Management. And it has images of what are called con convenience containers. So I, I, I've heard of con convenience containers. What you use is, is to store plutonium, normally in a metal form that's not like a plutonium core, but it's like excess plutonium you use in the process of a nuclear power plant and that kind of stuff. And this particular slide deck is about Savannah River site, which is where the Department of Energy does a lot of their like nuclear weapon activities. So the, I have some pictures for you guys to look at here. And you can see the, the text on the writing. Yeah. It's identical to the thing there. So I what I think happened was, I think somebody in the props team, which I think is usually pretty good for these movies, probably Googled plutonium <laughs> storage <laughs> <Right>. box <laughs> and got that. So if you yeah, search plutonium storage box, you'll get this That's image. Great. That pops up. I, I don't know if that's where it happened, but I thought that was kind of interesting because why have that writing on there at all? Have you ever thought about becoming a consultant to these movies? On well, when I was in, is that what the end game of this podcast? <laughs> no, because no one, because none of this stuff matters, right, James? When you watch a movie like this, do you care about this kind of uh, accuracy? Like anything, any movies that you watch where you have certain things that you are more knowledgeable about that irritate you, or well, no, I mean, I think uh, you know, as the pedestrian viewer. You just want it to look plausible. And what's interesting is, you know, it's kind of just like out in the ether. Like pe people have seen images of military, whatever, like equipment or vehicles. That what I like is, you know, in this particular case, the imprint on the cylinder, you know, they, they obviously lifted that like exact, the exact letters, basically tried to copy the font as close as they could. And then they were like, well, we got to make this look a little bit cooler. So let's make it a spheroid. And mm -hmm. but like, you know, as a viewer, you're just looking at that and you're like, OK, it's got some kind of serial number there. And, uh, you know, it's a shiny, dense looking ball. Like, I'm going to buy that. that. That looks like a plutonium core. Well, I found in doing as many of these movies as we have that a lot of the times when people write screenplays or, or the props department build something, they aren't trying to hearken to reality and accurate depictions they're hearkening to another movie or film right. that's so that it's or some the like same conception language. Yeah. some conception of what you think a this would look like I mean, right? that's 
that's that's the goal of most of these these skill screenwriters and directors and prop makers. They're trying to evoke a reaction out of the film uh, viewer, not trying to get uh, to tickle my fancy in terms of the actors. Well, in angle. your case, they've elicited a super critical reaction. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But in, so in the in the movie, it looks like um, most of the time these these smaller plutonium cores are closer to like three point five inches in diameter. At least they are in the open source that we know about. What's called a demon core configuration, like literally a demon core, and it got that name. And I'll tell you why. Like from nefarious uh, tragic incidents but this movie just larger but i think it's the movie is implying that the conventional explosives are on the outside of the plutonium core and then that's surrounded by like an aluminum metal so all you need to do is plug and play like put this into something and and then the bomb itself this like big uh like i don't know like a like a keg shape maybe yeah. that's cave shape but it's like a long yeah, it's, it's box a cylinder yeah with the two hydraulic pieces that kind of co- uh, close it like that kind of thing seems to do some part of the bomb but really most of it is in the core itself that's what they seem to be implying so to the a film. to a lay person i think what was kind of um confusing alarming whatever is how casually the uh characters in the movie are just touching this thing yeah. and like there's one part where uh, Benji's touching it with like a little beryllium rod to check for the reaction, and there's another. They're just kind of handing this around as if it's nothing big, and you'd think like, "Jesus, there's a lot of like radiation coming out of this. Shouldn't you handle that mm-hmm. more carefully?" Is that? I mean, is that how they'd handle this stuff? Or I, I think it generally be okay to handle a plutonium core that's not uh, that's like configured correctly. It's not stored. Okay. It's not a, in a supercritical state, so it's it's undergoing spontaneous fission, but. It's not like going uh, going crazy yeah. to the pr- the point where it's producing damaging radiation. Well, I didn't really understand what Benji was doing. He had a he had a, what he called a ber- beryllium rod yeah. to cause some kind of reaction, and then to check measure if it's it, real, yeah, to see if it's real. It's like it's like tasting the cocaine, like oh, it's pure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he should have licked licked the uh, <laughs> licked the reactor. Um, so I don't really know what what's going on there. There there is probably already beryllium on the in the core itself. Because beryllium is used as a, a a reflector of the neutrons, they might be alluding to the fact that you can c- sometimes use beryllium and can receive the neutrons from the plutonium and then react. But that's usually the other way around. So like that's actually sometimes you use in a detector. But so it's not causing a reaction with the plutonium. They're trying to see if the neutrons coming out of the bomb affect the beryllium and cause more neutrons. And then okay. they'll be like, oh, there's something radioactive in this core. But there's other ways to do that too. So I'm not really sure what they were going on there anyways, but hey, it's interesting. Now, they also put them in this cool little box that has the pads and stuff. Uh, to me, it looked like the three dragon eggs that Daenerys always has all the time. Maybe just because I think oh, about Game of Thrones, God. but it looks like that. Uh, Can we get through one podcast without a Game of Thrones reference? Maybe one of these. Maybe one of these days. But anyways, it's a cool. It's a cool thing. Now, the one thing you would probably want to do is not store all of the plutonium cores that closely together, because the more plutonium you put in one place, the more likely you're going to get a uh, reactions. Yeah. Right. So you want to keep them usually stored separately, but that's fine. It's a, it works out okay. The one thing I'll say is that the AMC, AMC theater, so where we saw the movie, yeah, in August was running a promotion on Twitter that if you like retweeted a tweet of theirs. You could win the props themselves. Uh, I did not win, but I hope the person that won is appreciating them as much as I would. Right into the show. If you won the if you won the cores, let's uh, let's have you right in. We we'd love to get you on, and we'll talk about the we'll play look, basketball and look them. at them. Yeah, yeah. I love the game of uh, plutonium core softball. <laughs> yeah, it looks like they look a little bit like bocce balls in this movie. I thought it was really weird too how the the cores themselves had a, a hemisphere, like the welding wasn't all done that well. 
Because most of the time they would have to be pretty polished. Sometimes they have it where it's called, um, I think it's called unbonded, which means you could use a lattice to separate okay. the cores. And that's how you would get into the plutonium in the middle and everything. But this one, it seemed like they were like, just put two cores, to, like halves together and like welded it. Yeah. Like it was, a shoddy welding. Yeah. It was a, the Russian, it was from a Russian, you know, in the middle of Siberia. It was cold. They didn't yeah. have time to do the weld properly. Oh, so well. what, so, okay. So that's the cores. What about the bomb itself, which is this kind of cylinder surrounding that? What do we think that, does that bear yeah. any relation to reality? So I thought that looked a lot like what we, what we, you think about what's called like a, a suitcase bomb or a back backpack bomb okay they did mention that it would be man portable this movie is really good at just using the buzzwords like fail safe trigger red button uh man portable like it just uses the words plutonium core over and over again so you're always constantly knowing what's happening with the bomb but this particular thing looked a lot like what's called the special atomic demolition munition or adm which is a backpack bomb from the 50s and the 60s uh, they had, but this was not five megaton. It was less than a kiloton. It was a pretty small bomb, and this was shaped like a keg, like literally like a yep. keg you would have beer in. Uh, it was about eighteen inches tall. Uh, it was encased in aluminum fiberglass frame. Uh, it looked a bit like a bullet, like the round part of a bullet uh, on one end, and the other end had a twelve-inch diameter control panel. The lightest version of this was about one hundred and fifty pounds including a 60-pound warhead. So it was actually pretty heavy when you have this whole thing. And the idea is a team of one or two soldiers would parachute out of an airplane, would drop the bomb package at some key location, like a dam or a port or a place where... Or or a glacier. Or some sort of glacier-like figure or like a place where there's going to be troops moving their tanks through. And they set the bomb on a a timer. There was no real like tamper-proof fail-safe mechanism, but there was some sort of fun dial combination lock that would glow in the dark like to open up the the configuration. Uh, And they would set it on a timer and then they would get out of there. They would usually swim into the ocean and get picked up by like a submarine. And then the bomb would go off on a timer and then that would irradiate an area, either blowing up like a uh, a port or something or troops could no longer move through there like that was the plan what they would do that when the russians were advancing into western europe they would just irradiate a bunch of places to say you can't pass through here and you have to go to somewhere else that we want you to go to gotcha no i'm, I'm looking at photos online uh as, as you're yeah. talking about this it de- definitely looks a lot less um the one in the movie has more like kind of pipes and it looks, it looks very looks open clearly the movie version is a lot more stylized than the real one but no i think this could be the closest resemblance uh, well, they didn't last very long because they were vulnerable to theft because they were backpacks. And they also would most likely be used on allied territory to stop an invasion. And it turns out that that was not a very popular idea with our allies. It's not clear how you get a thermonuclear reaction in this. This is a little technical, so maybe I won't get into it too much. But you have to have some combination of like uranium and plutonium, two stages where one stage will ignite and cause fusion of hydrogen to get to that level of megaton status. Like an implosion plutonium bomb tends not to be a megaton size. Okay, It's smaller than that. When you get bigger ones, it's you cause a fission reaction to produce enough energy to fuse two hydrogen atoms together. And that causes more energy to get released. And that two-stage bomb, it's not clear at all how the configuration that they got created causes any of those things. Because there's no discussion about, like, lithium uh, deuteride is one of the elements that you would need about that type of hydrogen. There's no discussion about how they got that. And that's actually pretty hard to get to. So it's like... None of those things. It probably seems to be just a pure fission device, but there's no way that that would get up to that high. The largest pure fission bomb was called Ivy King. It was a a nuclear test uh, that was done during the Cold War, but that only got to 500 kilotons. And that was a huge, huge bomb, like test device. Uh, So I I have no idea how they were able to do this. 
Norwegian science maybe is a little more advanced than we give them credit for. But yeah, so James, you said you pretty much just like thought everything clicked generally okay with uh, the bomb design and everything. Yeah, I mean, my assumption was that now that Nokia has pulled out of the mobile phone business, that you have all these <laughs> engineers. That's funny. So, you know, they, they get on the black market, they're doing some questionable things. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're, you're creating a five megaton backpack bomb. Well, those were some sturdy phones back in the day. I yeah. can see them building some sturdy backpack bombs. Yeah, that would survive a nuclear blast. One of those candy bar, Nokia candy bars. <laughs> uh, all right, so moving from there to the, one of the next things I would like to talk about is this whole plan to cause suffering, to cause great peace thing, which is very similar to, to Ghost Protocol. But I was trying to see if there was any sort of example of this in, in nuclear terrorism literature of people trying to do this in the real world. Because one of the major hurdles to nuclear terrorism is not like the, having a Norwegian scientist build you a bomb. Most people can figure out. It's it's not easy, but it's easy enough that someone could configure some kind of a, a bomb right. uh, using open source information. It's access to fissile material, like the plutonium core that they're talking about. Most of the time, people are talking about getting access to a fissile material that you then have to craft and mold using metallurgy into a core, but they just get the core, so they just use it. So really, that's like the big issue. So I would first say that probably a re- the average nuclear physicist probably doesn't know how to build the rest of the bombs of a, a nuclear, the rest of the components of a nuclear bomb, but maybe this person was just really into these things and, and learned how. Most of the time, like a bomb designer, there's multiple bomb designers that work on a project, and each of them know a particular part of it. Yeah, like no one person could design fighter jet or uh, one person works on the core and the other person works on the bomb package yeah this person knew everything about everything that's okay so what this terrorist plot itself made me want to look into the literature to find about maybe the closest example would be apocalyptic terrorist organizations that want to bring about an apocalypse it's like a very grandiose we need to like purify the world we need to burn the chaff and all that kind of thing i mean Is that something we see in real life? There are some examples of that. The book I would recommend people check out, it's called Destroying the World to Save It, Om Shunriko, Apocalyptic Violence and the New World Terrorism from 2000 by Robert J. Lifton. Uh, He interviewed a bunch of current and former members of the uh, Japanese-based cult that was responsible for the Tokyo sarin gas subway bombing uh, in 1995. Like they released a bunch of sarin gas in the subway. They killed 11 people and a bunch of other people got sick. And this particular cult was it was interviewed, former and current members, by Dr. Lifton. And he described the cult's efforts basically. Their goal was cause mass violence to, quote, renew humankind through total or near destruction of the planet. Which is pretty similar do to... They, do they succeed? I think we're okay right oh. now, but they did succeed in the. I don't feel very attack. renewed right oh, now. Yeah. So yeah, no. Well, their goal, uh, their leader Shoko Asahara, he read the Book of Revelations and the the Christian Bible and other religious texts, and much like Charlie Manson and the Beatles situation, he interpreted them that said that his goal would be to start the apocalypse and that will save everybody. He really wanted to go out and buy weapons from Russia, nuclear weapons, and use them to start World War Three uh, between Japan and the United States because it's the nineties, right? We're not as much friends with uh, Japan as we were. I guess that's more like an 80s thing, but that's where he grew up. Uh, The idea would be that they would cause the end of the world, like end times, breakdown of civilization. His followers would be superhumans that would survive the all-out nuclear war living in bunkers. According to the cult leader, he would survive and then they would all gain like enlightenment, essentially. And the roots of this idea, uh, according to a book called The Cult at the End of the World by David Kaplan and Andrew Marshall... This particular scenario of like nuking the world, causing rebirth of civilization came from something that this cult leader read in science fiction novels by Isaac Asimov called the Foundation Trilogy and or another book uh, 
by, called Nuclear Terrorism, the Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe by Graham Allison, uh, describes some of the cult leaders' uh, efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. And I thought this was kind of interesting because it compares to how we see the movie play out. Some of these people use the construction minister of this cult. Like they had a bunch of different people working on the the cult and one of them was their construction minister. I like that. Yeah, every cult needs a good construction (laughs) minister. He made multiple trips to Russia in 1992 uh, and they had, uh, weirdly enough, like three times as many members in Russia of the cult than they did in Japan. They recruited physicists and engineers from uh, Khrushchev Institute and the Moscow University and other universities in Japan. Uh, They had a, a pricing memo, which we're not sure whether or not it meant how much they were willing to pay or how much the Russians told them the bombs would be worth. But they said that it would be $15 million to get a handful of nuclear weapons. That's what this document that they have. And this would not be a big deal because this cult had an annual income of more than a billion dollars. Oh, wow. They purchased property in Australia to buy uranium deposits. Uh, they bought a laser system in the United States that could be used to, to measure spherical surfaces of fission cores. So they had this weird haphazard, like, all right, we're going to try to do this. All right, we can't buy it. Well, then let's try to get uranium and enrich it ourselves. Really complicated tasks. But they, they tried their best to kind of go about that's and not, purchase I mean, a that's bomb. nuts that somebody actually was trying to do this. I mean, I, even though they obviously failed, but just to have that same idea, I mean, that that's pretty crazy, I must say. Theirs was a little more plausible that we're just going to attack cities, not this, like, we're going to attack a glacier, which... Yeah, radiate ha- the water. That, that for me, I just didn't, um, I did not buy into that. And like I said, it, as a storytelling device, it, it brought it more to caring about the characters, mm. but I just didn't follow how that was going to kill one-third of the Earth's population instantly. Yeah, James was pretty pessimistic about that plan as well. I would say that like it would certainly would be bad if they irradiated water. Whatever, but it's kind of unclear what you mean by irradiate water because water molecules themselves don't become irradiated. But you hmm. could you could have radioactive particles in the water that's like debris or something. But it would be pretty bad because drinking water with radioactive isotopes increases the rate of thyroid cancer and other illnesses. So it would be an issue. But I would say that the, this has been debated a little bit. Like, could you use nuclear weapons to irradiate the enemy's water supply? And the best source I found on this is a report called The Medical Implications of Nuclear War, published by the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the steering committee for the Symposium on Medical Implications of Nuclear War from 1986. So it's a little bit dated, but it's interesting. And the quote that they have from here is, One serious problem following a large-scale nuclear exchange is radioactive contamination of drinking water. During the first few months in areas extending several hundred kilometers downwind of an explosion, the dust, smoke, and radioactivity would cause severe water pollution in surface waters. Many of the fission products would remain fixed in fallout dust, river and lakebed sediments and soils. In the absence of additional contamination from runoff, lakes, reservoirs, and rivers would gradually become less contaminated as water flowed through the system. However, some groundwater would become contaminated and remain, though, for tens of years after a nuclear war, it would take hundreds or thousands of years for an aquifer to become pure. Doses from drinking this water would be small, but nonetheless possibly above current water safety standards. I think I interpret this to be that it would be bad for a while, but most of the time when you have a river, through the process of a river like filtering water, which it does anyways, it would likely filter a lot of that out by the time it got to the point where people would be using it for irrigation. Right. 
I think that's kind of how I would see it. And there's also other ways to, to deal with irradiated water sources. You can have, you can filter water, radioactive particles out of water. Uh, you can't really boil or use chemical defection because that doesn't remove the water particles themselves. You would need some kind of like activated charcoal filtration system, reverse osmosis, water filtration, different ways to get out the isotopes. This is my bird a picture? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the process that it uses, okay. just on a larger scale. Now, one thing that a lot of like survivalist uh, pamphlets and here to how you survive a nuclear war kind of things, yeah, they always have plans of how you can build an earth filter using uh, essentially it's like a bucket that you put layers of between like silt and rocks and dirt, and then you have holes at the bottom of the bucket that drain into like another thing where the water would go to, and you pour the water into the top. You know, it just filters using dirt and rocks and things. And that'll get the nuclear material That would get out. a huge chunk because it actually just filters everything. And all that's left is what can flow through that process, oh, wow. which is what happens with rivers cleaning out oh, that's dirt true. anyways. Yeah, yeah. So this would be like a short-term solution for people to have drinking water. It wouldn't solve the irrigation problem, but you'd have something. So I, I, I think ultimately I would say like it would be a big deal, but it wouldn't be something where it would cause automatic deaths of one third of the population. So the the other thing, too, in the movie that was strange is they seemed to be far from the glacier. They weren't, like, right on the glacier when they were going to set this yeah. missile or this uh, bomb off. Were they close enough to, to kind of destroy it or, or, or irradiate it, I should say? So this is where I think they needed to have a five megaton bomb. Otherwise, none of the type of yields that you would get in the average Russian weapon that you could steal would be near near close at all. So I used Nuke Map, right, our, our, our tool developed by... Alex Wellerstein at Stevens Institute of Technology, which you can go on and, and plug in uh, a bomb size and it, whether it's an air burst or a ground burst and where you want it to go off and you can see where the, the, the casualties and the implications would be. Using Nuke Map, I put a bomb based of where that glacier is, kind of where the map is that you see in the movie, and I put a five megaton ground burst. And according to this, there would be a crater of about uh, 1,080 feet, uh, a fireball radius of 1.5 miles, and an air blast of about 20 PSI, which is enough to knock over concrete buildings, out to about 2.3 miles. I think that's why they decided to go with a, a 5 megaton bomb instead of the more realistic, like, 300 kilotons. Yeah. So it, it would damage something. It would be, like, a big area, but I don't know if it's nearly big enough for the type of damage that they're talking about still. What's what's strange, though, is why would they write in needing... Like, if they went through this analysis and wrote in needing the bigger bomb, why not just write in that they set the bomb off, a normal-sized bomb, on the glacier, right? It's not like there are other people in this part of the world that would be, like, suspicious about this kind of thing. Well, most people don't actually, according to the things i found there aren't villages that actually are on the glacier okay like but there must be one close by like right next to it there's like an indian uh military camp and then 10 miles some south of there there's a, a small village and you don't need a village you just need to get that you just you could just take a helicopter there and just drop the bomb on the glacier but then do you get the be able the to elaborate the elaborate yeah the, the stupid elaborate yeah. uh plot where you just solve that by just killing them on camera as you said and right this this is just needlessly complicated. It's very complicated. And one more thing I'll add here is is that don't think that if you have two five megaton bombs go off at the exact same time, then you get a ten megaton bomb. They're going to have to time that so perfectly because if one bomb goes off a fraction earlier than the other one, what you get is a bomb that goes off that destroys another thing before it has a chance to explode. Like if you use and that's what's called fratricide. Like you have to if you're a nuclear targeter and you want to have two nuclear bombs hit a city. Or, say, a bunker because you want to make sure you definitely destroy this missile silo or something. You have to have one explosion happen and then wait for the bomb to stop and then do another one. You can't just have two go off at the exact same time. 
Anyways, I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. James, when you were gripping your seat during this helicopter fight, did you think of any of this kind of stuff? Like, Yeah, so um, I think that that was the impression I had too, that I thought the main goal here, based on what they were saying in the movie, was that they were going to try to melt a ton of water or radiate a ton of water. Like you said, you know, they're in this village kind of at the foot of the glacier. And in that case, why wouldn't you like drill a hole as far deep into the ice as you could? set it off inside glaciers so that you could dislodge a ton of ice and melt it and create a giant flood so yeah but that's actually really interesting that 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 part um didn't even occur to me uh the fratricide idea that you know if, if they don't detonate precisely simultaneously the one that goes first will vaporize the other one and then i guess the idea there is, is that one of them will go off if someone tried to dismantle the other one maybe that's why they they did too okay so that is enough of the kind of what the bomb is like and how it's going to be used. I want to get back to this issue that bothered me, which was the Wolf Blitzer scene. Okay. Which I thought was a pretty powerful moment until I realized that it was a fake out. When you see Ethan Hunt with his sad face and he's looking on uh, the CNN and he's hearing Wolf Blitzer talking about how there's bombs going off at the same time in these three major cities. And I would I was wondering, like, what actually would be how a nuclear war would... Right. And that's why this this is why, I mean, we said earlier I was not fooled by it. It didn't feel like it had the gravitas of... I feel like if Wolf Blitzer was actually reporting on this, even his robotic monotone hmm. like delivery would be broken by that and he would show some sign of just being crushed by you know the the re- the reality of what was happening hmm. yeah it, it is a it's an interesting one there there isn't a lot of literature about like how someone would report a nuclear terrorist incident there is some interesting films about that like if we we did this movie special bulletin on the podcast which i love talking about i thought that's one of the best tv movies about nuclear weapons and nuclear attacks that i've ever covered it's a very powerful movie. I'd recommend it. And that's really good about showing a local TV news broadcaster talking about these issues. But then I wanted to look at like, how would the news plan to report nuclear war or like the end of the world through a nuclear attack? And I found two things here. One, CNN and one, the British Broadcasting Channel, BBC. So let's talk first about BBC. So they have this thing during the Cold War called Wartime Broadcasting System that the BBC would use. And uh, they had this uh, plan called the War Book. There would be 11 protected bunkers of uh, deferred facilities spread across the country with BBC studios. And there'd be staff drawn, five or so, from different local radio stations that would be the ones in charge of reporting what was going on in the event of a, a full-scale nuclear attack. Uh, the staff would be mostly male. Uh, so they, they could not reproduce they, and create more <laughs> new newscasts, baby newscasters? Nope, they couldn't tell their wives that they were uh, on the list at all for the bunkers. It had to be kind of a secret part of their plan. Uh, and according to BBC articles about this, the quote here is, To keep the public amused during Armageddon, a collection of cassette tapes of old radio programs, including The Goon Show, would be kept in a gray locker. It was eventually realized, however, that uh, these would be redundant because if there was a nuclear attack, radios would be dependent on batteries and those would need to be conserved for news and important announcements. So they decided that we had all these funny shows to keep people entertained when they're hiding out in their protected zones, uh, their their inner cores of where they were, were hiding. They weren't meant to be encouraged to leave the radio on to hear the latest fun show and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, there were code words to uh, tell people that the plan was activated and that they needed to. Those were those were redacted largely from the book when it was released in public, this war book. But one of them they forgot to black out was called falsetto, which was what you would authorize a national warning to tell people there was an incoming attack. A Radio 4 news reader named Peter Donaldson. Uh, he had a well-known trusted voice. He would record the most recent warning announcement that, that was found out. And this is what the, the tape would say. The tape would say, this is the wartime broadcasting service. The country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Communications have been severely disrupted. And the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known. We shall bring you further information as soon as possible. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this wavelength and stay calm and stay in your own homes. Like that would be the report that would be released. It wouldn't. Huh. That would be what people would hear on the radio, uh, would he, would see on television of how all this would work out. And maybe this was the pressure of having to record this particular uh, very grim message. But uh, after they recorded this with Peter Donaldson, according to the British uh, BBC official that was in charge of this plan, Michael Hoder, they all drank a bottle of whiskey to calm themselves. I think like a whole bottle of whiskey to calm the nerves. So this is, I mean, this is back in the day, a long time ago. I mean, to take this into the modern era, I mean, how do you think CNN would would handle this? Is there any any clues into how the CNN broadcast would actually look if this happened? So this this is interesting. So this came out a couple years ago. A CNN intern found a tape that was called Turner Doomsday Video, HFR. Till the end of the world confirmed. HFR means hold for release. So this this intern released this uh, story about a tape. Uh, and according to the news reports, Ted Turner, who was the, the billionaire founder of CNN, he ordered the creation of a video that would play as the world ends. Whether it's nuclear apocalypse, which what people assumed, or anything, right? Climate change, alien attack, something. The world's ending. This is the last thing that they'll play on CNN. Uh, and what the video is, and you can see this on YouTube, uh, it is a video of the U.S. Army Forces Command Band playing Nearer My God to Thee as the music ends and fades to black. This is also supposedly the song the band was playing when the Titanic sunk. Uh, and it's a video that's cl- pretty clearly like Ted Turner's home, like one of his like mansions, and it's uh, the band playing in front of it, and it fades to black. So that's how CNN would report the end of the world, at least. Interesting. Not Wolf Blitzer talking about. Thank you. I'm going to go watch this now and have nightmares nightmares for weeks. So thank you very much for that, Tim. <laughs> My pleasure, Gabe. My pleasure. All right. So that's enough nukes talk here. Uh, let's do our parking lot movie discussion. The movie's over. Literally, in this case, Gabe and I are in the parking lot having a and chat. And James is there too. Yeah, James is there uh, in spirit for us. So for this for this kind of piece here, did you uh, did you guys think that the the these nuke issues, nuke, I don't, maybe probably not. Like the, did they detract from the your enjoyment of the film? Like, I enjoyed the fake out stuff here and there, uh, but the the fact that this movie, uh, I really was going in weirdly enough expecting that there would be a bomb that would go off and they would have to deal with the consequences, the the quote unquote fallout of it. I don't. Maybe that was too depressing for a summer movie. But um, did you guys? Kind of, what do you think about this theme here that the movie is called Fallout? Kind of what it means and. Did you enjoy the film and that what it was trying to do on a narrative point or maybe just an action point? James? Yeah. So, I mean, the um, I would say the nuclear nitty gritty, obviously, since I wasn't aware of it at the time, even now that I am aware of it, 
um, really doesn't detract too much from the movie for me because really what they're there is you're a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like they're there to be the MacGuffin. You know, you got these three cores. Yeah. Um, they're little hot potatoes, and uh, <laughs> everyone's running around frantically trying to get their hands on the cores. And the and you know you have multiple parties involved. They're all intriguing to get their hands on this thing, and uh, that creates all the suspense and the thrill of the, the movie. You know, and it's just like a classic Mission Impossible you know structure for the plot, where Ethan Hunt's in the middle of this crazy hunt for the MacGuffin. He doesn't know who wants it and why. He doesn't know who's on what side and yeah. why. But, you know, he's going to use his wiles and his amazing spy capabilities to, to win in the end. So, yeah, the, like that, the whole movie, I mean, it, it was like at least two hours, 15 minutes, maybe two and a half hours. And the whole time I watched it with my wife, Maria, and we were just like kind of on the edge of our seats, like okay. super tense. I, I remember when the movie ended, I felt like muscles in my body were, feel them all kind of hmm. tense. <laughs> So I thought it was pretty successful. Now, Gabe, you uh, you and, and your wife uh, did not have that kind of reaction for this film. Maybe in some parts, but maybe not the whole thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, the whole, it was a little too much, too many tropes, too many, too much stuff that I'd seen before. And the nuclear thing in the back, I just didn't. Yeah, toward the end, it came a little bit. It came together a little bit when they're in in Kashmir and the whole group is together. But I just, I wasn't. That wasn't a driving factor of the plot for me. It was it was more of just a, as James said, just this kind of like MacGuffin thing that just needed to move the plot along. I It was maybe a missed opportunity. They could have done something more there. I really thought that I mean, some of the action scenes, some of the chase scenes were very high quality. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just the narrative, it seemed a little borrowed from stuff I'd seen before. It wasn't, yeah, it didn't really excite me too much. It was put together yeah. very nicely. Color grading was great. Lots of teals and oranges. <laughs> um, but no, that was, that. that's kind of how we felt about it. Okay, yeah, I guess this whole Fallout theme, the, according to the director, the, the title had different meanings. There were literal ones and figurative ones. The literal was the threat of nuclear terrorism, uh, and the figurative one was all of uh, the choices Ethan has made in his life, like all of the previous movies, are now coming back to haunt him. The fallout of his good intentions. I really don't know how well they did that part of it. I thought they tried, and there were some references to the fact that he's had a previous life that he tried to have and it didn't work out and all this stuff. And the fact that he, he kidnapped or he captured Solomon Lane. So now that's coming back to get him. I, I don't know. To me, that wasn't as narrowly strong as the literal side of the fallout piece. Well, and you don't, you don't see this moment where he's ever, even though there's all this stuff going on, you never see a moment where Ethan Hunt like breaks down or realizes the weight of all this. It's usually the other characters. Like there's this one scene where Luther talks to his, or to Ilsa mm-hmm. and says, like talks about his background and everything. He's loved two women. Yeah. Life. But like yeah. Ethan is just like moving with this. He, he never stops to like uh, suffer from this. And, you have an idea that he probably would suffer if uh, if the uh, Solomon's yeah. plan were to go forward, but you never really see it impact him at all. It's it's just kind of this you know, thing. You know, you know where you see it is Mission Impossible Three, because at one point, spoiler alert for Mission Impossible Three, I'll give people a second here. Is there's a moment where he thinks that his wife just got shot, and you see him just completely break down. He's trying to like, no, what if I do this? What if I do this? You know, talk this, and I just and he thinks that the wife gets shot, and it, obviously it's a fake mask thing. Another one of those, right? But that moment broke Tom Cruise's character, and I liked that. 
There wasn't an equivalent moment in this exactly. film, so I'll say that's certainly not the case. Before we let James get out of here, uh, let's do our quick rating system of the film. Uh, I want to crunch the numbers here because we always like to do a, a tailored rating system, you know, one to five, so it's consistent, but making sure that it's if we're going to be super critical about the film, we want to be super critical about our rating scale. And for here, let's do one out of five wolf blitzers because a lone wolf blitzer is enough to report the occasional piece of breaking news, but five wolf blitzers. You can literally fill up a situation room. <laughs> too many wolves. <laughs> too uh, many wolves. Too many wolves. <laughs> uh, I will say that this movie, for me, clicked and worked very well. I'm going to give it a 4.5. Not a perfect movie, but the emotional reaction I had in the action sequences and everything, despite the no- nuclear nonsense, I would recommend this movie to anyone who enjoys a good time. Uh, James, what about you? I would give it the exact same rating for the exact same reasons, except for the fact that I think in this case we really need to be working with integers of wolves. I don't want to see. <laughs> so I'm going to give it four wolves out of five. Uh, Gabe, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go 3.5 here. Actually, a little bit lower. I thought uh, it was a fun... That's, that's higher than I would thought you would have given it. No, I yeah. I mean, compared to what I was saying last night, I on, upon reflection, it was a fun you know, blockbuster type movie. I think I went in with overly high expectations given that it had such a high rating, but I thought it was just another garden variety, run-of-the-mill action type movie. Very, some very like memorable scenes, but on the story side, nothing, nothing went about. Great color grading. Those, those teals (laughs) and oranges, man. I just like, yeah, couldn't, you know, they did such a great job with that. Well, your birthday's coming up. I'm going to get you that exact paint palette and you can enjoy (laughs) painting your house uh, that color. All right, so let's do our final piece here where we usually recommend something for the listeners to try out if they liked Mission Impossible Fallout. Here's some, a few things that would be of interest to read or watch afterwards. Uh, I've got three things. Gabe, I think you've got some stuff. I know James doesn't have anything here, um, but we've got three things to recommend on my end. Uh, first is a movie called Fat Man and Little Boy. It's from 1989. Uh, it stars Paul Newman and a couple other actors, including uh, a character played by... John Cusack, who is a Manhattan Project scientist who gets involved with a criticality accident and dies in the course of experimenting with a plutonium core. You see a flash of blue light. He causes too much criticality by using his half sphere of beryllium in a screwdriver, playing around with it, trying to get it to do a critical reaction, but, oh, it's too much. Everybody gets zapped and he eventually dies. And the people, when you get trained in EOD or explosive ordnance disposal teams, your first day, they play the tape of him dying in a hospital room to show how serious it is when you deal with these types of materials. Uh, the scene is very well done in Fat Man and Little Boy, and I'd recommend checking that out. I guess you can actually get the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, I also recommend the movie Ronin from 1988. It's a great action movie with uh, Robert De Niro and Jean Renault. Uh, One of the best car chases, I think, in movie history. Uh, It's a great mystery, lots of twists, lots of double crosses. So if you like Mission Impossible, definitely check this out. And finally, something to read. I would read an article by Matthew Galt, uh, who does the War College podcast. Uh, He wrote this article in War is Boring, and as well as the National Interest, called Mission Impossible Fallout Missed Its Chance to Tell a Good Nuclear War Story. So I would definitely check that out. Uh, He has an interesting take on how that movie could have been a little bit different if it wanted to tell a more complicated and serious nuclear story, which it clearly 
wasn't really interested. It was more of an action movie, but I kind of feel very similar to him of this as being a little bit of a missed opportunity, but maybe just kind of what my interest is. Uh, the War College podcast, I was also on that a couple years ago to talk about dragons and Game of Thrones and nukes and things like that. So if you don't have that podcast on your subscription feed, also check that out called the War College podcast. Gabe, you got something to recommend to people? Yeah, I, I would recommend a couple of things. So first, uh, as I said, there was that scene in Paris that really reminded me of this um, this uh, short film from the 1970s. It's called C'est un rendezvous, C-E-T-A-I-T space U-N space R-E-N-D-E-Z-V-O-U-S. Great movie of this dude just driving this car like crazy through through the streets of Paris. It's wonderful, and we'll remind you of that scene in the movie. I'm going to watch that after this and then have a nightmare about never driving <laughs> exactly, the car yeah. again. The other one I think is fun. So uh, just with respect to all the mass um, Mythbusters, a show that I was a huge fan of um, while I was on Discovery Channel – where they tested a lot of movie myths. They did an episode, uh, in episode number 160, Mission Impossible Mass, where they actually did an experiment as to whether uh, you could actually fool somebody with a very high-quality Hollywood-style mask and, mm. and impersonate someone else. So I will not spoil the result of that. I will uh, encourage people to go watch that to see whether you could use the mask to convince people that you were someone else. I don't know if they also talk about whether or not if you have this ability, if you use it 50, 60, 70 times in the course of a day, if it eventually wears thin yeah exactly uh, it's like your friend who keeps like doing the same party trick over and over you're like dude come on you gotta stop with the masks <laughs> yeah or that your friend that has a podcast about nuclear weapons and he keeps having your other friends come right. on and say no seriously isn't this weird about how they don't have the criticality angles right what's the deal with the spheres yep yep uh well thanks those are good recommendations all right james thanks so much for coming on the podcast on skype we'll have to get you in the podcast studio uh slash my basement at some point in person when you're back here in dc uh but i hope you had a good time and thanks for coming on talking about mission impossible fallout my pleasure uh, tim gabe it was a great discussion explosive if you will <laughs> and uh, yeah hope to uh be back on the podcast again and see you guys soon Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, want to tell us what we got wrong, yeah, there's a couple ways you can do that. We got a website, supercriticalpodcast.com. We got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. I'm on Twitter uh, when I don't have other actual real professional work to do, at uh, Nuclear Podcast. Uh, you can reach us there. And I also have an email account that I check, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. You enjoyed the program? Hey, go on iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a five-star review, and uh, maybe put a recommendation about what kind of films we should be covering, and that helps us a lot uh, figuring out what people want to hear. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And James. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. <laughs>